Radio Aspile. We explore and discover together. Welcome to Radio Aspile. It's 2018. This is our first episode of this year, episode 7, and we have a great show lined up for you. Off we go. to Radio Aspile. We're talking Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 tonight. As always, we have a guest. It's uh, Grace Nathan, a relative of a passenger on board, her mother. Uh, We'll be talking to her shortly and we'll be catching up on the latest news on MH370. Very welcome to Radio Aspoil. You can catch us on uh, www.radioaspoil.com. We're available on other uh, social media outlets uh, at Radio Aspoil on Twitter and also uh, backslash backslash, uh, on Facebook uh, Radio Aspoil. 
Um, as I said, we have a great guest coming up for you. It's a guest I've wanted to interview for uh, a little time, and this is, was a very appropriate week. Of course, as I've said, our subject is uh, missing Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH370. Um, just for any new uh, listeners and 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 people watching this wherever on YouTube or iTunes or wherever in, in video in podcast form uh, just a quick update I uh, Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH370 uh, was a scheduled international passenger flight that disappeared on March the 8th 2014 while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport, Malaysia to Beijing, capital international airport in China. The aircraft uh, was a Boeing uh, 777-200ER operated by Malaysia Airlines. It last made uh, air traffic contact over the uh, South China Sea shortly before entering uh, Vietnam airspace where it was uh, intended to make contact and never did. Um, and that was that occurred 40 minutes after takeoff. Malaysian military say they did track the aircraft as it deviated westwards over the Malay uh, Peninsula. It left the range of military aircraft around about 2.22 a.m. northwest of uh, Penang. Uh, that's northwestern Malaysia. The aircraft uh, carried uh, 12 Malaysia crew members and 227 passengers from 15 nations. And of course, our guest tonight is Grace Nathan, um, and her mother was on that flight. And we're going to talk to her shortly. But what I want to do is bring you up to date with the latest news uh, that occurred on Wednesday this week. Um, And to do that, uh, following a three-year, more than three-year search uh, over 120,000 square kilometre uh, search area uh, that turned up nothing. Uh, we have had some positive news um, in recent days. So let's let's first of all um, pick up on that news. And as soon as we hear uh, the Malaysian Transport Minister uh, Lo Leo uh, speak, we're going to go straight then to the interview with uh, Grace Nathan of. Um, Voice 370, she is a representative of that uh, family support group. Okay, so let's hear from Minister Leo. Square kilometers. After negotiation. The Ministry of Transport has been given the uh, permissions to negotiate the Ocean Infinity uh, to enter into a contract continue with the search mission of MS370 and today I would like to take this opportunity to explain briefly regarding the uh, further search operation to locate MS370 by Ocean Infinity. As we have witnessed just now that uh, we have entered an official contract uh, with uh, Ocean Infinity to locate MH370. Based on the agreement, Ocean Infinity will undertake search operation to locate flight MH370 
at an area of 25,000 square kilometers search at the South Indian Ocean. So within the priority search area of the South Indian Ocean, based on the principle of no cure, no pay, no fee basis. So it's on the principle of no cure, no fee basis, within a 90-day time frame. The search operation is scheduled to commence mid-January this month, 2018. As we speak, the vessel seabed constructor is currently on the way to the search area, taking advantage of the terrible weather condition in the South Indian Ocean. We have on board 65 crew including two personnel from Royal Malaysian Navy as the Government of Malaysia representative. So the payment to Ocean Infinity, if we can locate the debris field or the flat recorder, or so-called black box, uh, in, as agreed in the agreement, uh, follow the area of search. If we can find the wreckage within the shorter possible time, within the 5,000 square kilometer search, uh, we will, the, the payment uh, will be USD 20 million. Uh, if it is within the 10,000 square kilometer search area, it will be 30 million. Within another, uh, within the 25,000 kilometer search area, is uh, 50 million. Uh, USD and beyond the 25,000 square search area is 70 million uh, USD. But all this uh, search area must be completed within uh, 90 days. The MH370 response team, headed by Director General of Civil Aviation, that was Sri along with officials from my ministry, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Ministry of Communication and Multimedia. Other agencies such as the Royal Malaysian Police and Attorney General's Chambers will be monitoring the work done by Ocean Infinity via an operation room established within the DCA premise. The team will be updating the families of those on board ms 370 via text messages and email as well as update information on the MS370 official website under the NOK's section at ms370.gov.my as and when the new information becomes available. So ladies and gentlemen, once again, I wish Okay, we're back uh, on Radio Spoil, and I'm joined by Grace Nathan. Uh, Grace, uh, you're very welcome. Um, uh, how are you? Fine, thank you, and thank you for having me. No problem. It's an absolute pleasure uh, uh, to have you on. I, I know we, we, we've been trying to arrange this um, for a while, and uh, I thought this the, the week that's in it was uh, quite an appropriate week uh, for us to, uh, to speak. Grace, I, I just want to um, go back perhaps to the much earlier days um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this interview with you on Radio Spoil is because 
um, I'm sure you've, you've felt it yourself over the years, that when we talk about the case of um, MH370, so often um, the relatives are not the focus. It's, it's the plane, it's the search, it's the Malaysian government, it's the investigation. And this was one of the important things why I wanted to have a relative on so we could see things from the uh, and, and the, the viewers and the listeners could see things from the perspective of, of, of a relative um i think the most important thing is i want to focus on your mother who you lost uh in this this tragedy uh and daisy let's just just paint a picture of your mother and, and just tell us a little bit about your mother well, my mother was a very happy, cheerful person, and she was always the light of the home. Like, she was always the one that everyone went to. She was the one that held us together, the glue that kept all of us together. She was the spirit of Christmas. Like, she would be the one to decorate the house, to do everything. So she was just like that generally in life. She was always there for us. She was always the one that was present. My dad was always away, always traveling. So in a lot of ways, she was uh, the only present parent we had. Mm-hmm. And so when we I mean my sister and I, so we're both very, very close to her. And she, although she was very small in stature, she was barely five feet tall and she was very petite, but she had like a lot of strength and a lot of courage. And she would always she, the, give us strength to do everything that we wanted to do. Any dream we had was her dream as well. Anything mm-hmm. we wanted to do helped us achieve. Um, let's, let's go back to that weekend of March 2014. Now, I, I, I'm recalling previous interviews and, and, and some maybe private discussions that we've had as well um, over time. Um, you, you, are, you weren't actually in um, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia at the time. You were actually in the UK, weren't you studying? Yes, I was. I was in the final semester of my bar school because I was studying to be a lawyer. So I was in becoming a barrister and I received the phone call really late at night. It was past midnight in England when I my dad called and I had just come back from the library and he he sounded really shaken. He sounded really scared and I'd never heard my dad like that. And sure. all he asked me and the first thing he asked me was when, was, when is your next exam? And it was Friday going on Saturday at the time and I told him my next exam was on Monday. And he said, okay. Uh, take the next flight and come home and I was like why what happened he's like don't ask me any questions just do as I tell you and my first thought was that maybe something happened to my grandmother because my grandmother had been in hospital okay. and that was and that was why my mom had actually delayed her flight by a week she was supposed to have flown to China a week before and but then I thought about it for a while and I thought I don't think my dad would be that upset if something had happened to my mom's mom okay yeah yeah I understand so I became, I started becoming very worried because at that moment, I it occurred to me that something must have happened either to my mother or my sister for my dad to be that shaken up. And then he called me back a little while later and I kept pestering him. I kept asking him. He called to ask if I'd already bought my ticket and I kept, I kept telling him, no, I'm looking online now. Yeah. And then he said, well, I think you need to come back. And I kept asking him why, why, why. Eventually he said something happened to the plane your mother was on, but we don't know what happened. And I remember at that point, like my whole world just became dark. I dropped the phone and I just, I didn't even buy my ticket. I just took my passport and I just took my handbag and I walked up to the the house. Yeah, because I was in Bristol. So I went straight to the coach station and got on the first coach to Heathrow and just went to the airport. 
that um that plane journey to Kuala Lumpur can't have been an easy one uh, because it's a long journey. Yeah, I was on a direct flight and the flight must have been about 14 hours and I remember not being, it was like such a long, long time to be cut off from the world because I remember all the three-hour bus journey from Bristol to Heathrow, I was refreshing my Google News Feed like every 10 seconds to mm-hmm. see if there was information about the plane. And in all of this time, like I remember that we hadn't been able to reach my sister who was probably still asleep mm-hmm. because it was really in the morning in Malaysia. And it was a Saturday morning. And I think at some point on my journey, my sister woke up and I told her like something had happened. And she said, the first thing she said to me was, don't lie. And I told her, no, just Google it. And then like, I think then she was in a panic state as well. And then it was difficult, not just to be cut off from the news, but also to be cut off from my family, to not be able to talk to anyone, to just not know what was happening. Because for me, 14 hours was such a long time. Anything could have happened. They could have found that the plane had crashed, but they Mm -hmm. could have found the plane ended somewhere. And, you know, like, there were so many possibilities and I just could not relax on that flight. Like I was, my mind was going to a million places, hoping for the best, but you know, still thinking about the worst. And when we landed, I remember like I couldn't even wait for the plane to like start taxiing. The minute it hit the ground, I took my seatbelt off and I was like, I wanted to get up and run out of the plane. The minute it stopped, I ran. The first thing I did was I ran to the front and I said like, is there any news? Is there any news? Because like with the minute they opened the door, like someone had from the outside had come in, a steward had come in, someone had been waiting for me to arrive because my dad had informed them that I was on that flight. Yeah. And I remember the first thing saying, is there any news? And he said, no, there isn't any news and actually felt somewhat relieved because at that point in time, like no news could possibly still be good news. Right. I suppose at that stage, in a sense, one can understand uh, you now have hundreds of relatives now involved in this and they're all thinking the same thing probably as well that that maybe no news is is good news that there's just been some sort of mistake made yeah or you know maybe everyone's alive maybe they've yeah. landed somewhere or they could all just be survived they could all have survived so yeah that was like the really it was a really rough time and and i remember like every hour that passed by like all we were doing was just sitting glued in front of the television watching the news updates and we uh, they had gathered all the family members in a hotel in Malaysia and uh, I remember going from the airport straight to the hotel just to like update the contact information so that they could contact us if they found anything and the place was chaos there was so much of press and it was at that point that my family my dad decided that we wouldn't stay at that hotel we would just stay at home and it's, since it's there was un- no- I suppose it's it's a big choice and I, 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 I would imagine that all of those families from China, Malaysia, Australia, wherever, they they were all making similar choices. Where do we want to be? Do we want to be, you know, close to the family support centres that I suppose were, were in process of being set up? Do they, you know, do they want to be housed in a hotel? Would they rather be at home with their own family looking at it from the perspective of, of TV. So that, that has to be tough for, for all families in, in, a, in, a, in a tragic situation, regardless of what it is. And I think it, a lot, for a lot of people, I mean, now that we're friends with everyone, like it boiled down to how close they lived. So mm-hmm. for the family that lived close by, it was okay to stay at home because if any news came up, they would just be able to drive to the support center, be there in an hour or so. But for the families that lived far away or from over, over from overseas, it made more sense for them to just be there so that they would get live updates so mm-hmm. that they would know 
something happened. And bearing in mind that at this point in time, we knew absolutely nothing. Yeah, absolutely, we didn't know yeah. the around. We didn't know anything. So at that point in time, like it was crucial to be like to receive information. And I mean, I guess my family was in a slightly better position because because of the position my father was in, because my father worked for the Department of Civil Aviation in Malaysia. So we were also being informed by his colleagues what was going on, what was happening. But I cannot imagine what it would, would have been like for like the other families who were completely in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and I suppose as well, from that perspective of the position that your dad was in, there must have been other families who may have started to know the position your dad held and must have been putting him under pressure as if to say look come you must know more than 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 they're telling us or um yeah an awful situation i think initially like our family and especially my dad stayed far far away from Mm -hmm. all the press specifically because he was in this sensitive position so nobody knew and I think it was much later on that when my dad went to one of the briefings, and this I think was after the Malaysian Prime Minister made the announcement that the plane had ended in the South Indian Ocean. And I think they had a briefing for the families and my father attended that briefing. And that was the first time a lot of the family members saw him and no one knew what he did. They this this would have been about two weeks, I think, roughly two weeks after uh, the, the initial yeah. plane went missing. Three weeks after. and. Okay. Uh, he had asked a lot of technical questions at the briefing. And I think that made a lot of the family members curious. They were like, oh, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Why is he asking these questions? How do you know these things? So I think then he was approached. And I'm not sure exactly what he said or who he told. But I mean, along the way, everyone knew. But it was it's really nice that everyone respected that he wanted to remain like private. That he didn't yeah. want everyone to know his position. And I know there was a huge press piece that came out sometime before the first remembrance event the first anniversary of the disappearance that sort of announced his position in all of this like his professional position and that was unintended mm-hmm. and then since then it's not it's not a secret anymore the at, at, at that time to bring us up to that that three-week point the 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 essentially what we would call the initial uh, surface sea surface search had gone from where the generally the aircraft uh, was uh, last disappeared uh, from um, secondary radar um, past the Agari uh, waypoint uh, in the South uh, China Sea. We it then kind of it shifted all over the place. We, we suddenly then we were in the Andaman Sea up the Malacca Strait, and then that bombshell from the Prime Minister. Now actually we've now. Got, we're confident with this information we have that it's it's in the the, the southern Indian Ocean, and um, that must have come as an extraordinary shock. Well, I suppose to all of us, but in particular family members, as to what what on earth is it doing in the the, the southern Indian Ocean? It was going to Beijing. Yeah, and I think for me at that point in time, one of the most shocking realizations was that when my dad made that phone call to me saying that the plane did not land it's missing it was was still in the air it's yeah it's incredible and that was like a devastating revelation is that like and then you find out that the malaysian military saw the plane you find out that bca found out like nothing was done no protocol was followed and you wonder if like all the neighboring countries were alerted would someone have picked it up would someone have seen it and you know that maybe this could have been prevented or at least you would have known where the plane ended its journey and like so many things could have been different 
in general, and I, I, I know you're, you're involved in um, Voice 370 with several other uh, uh, key um, uh, next of kin. Um, just we'll, we'll talk about uh, Voice 370 uh, a little bit. But just, I suppose, how it came about, because essentially, as I say, you were all struggling for your information. Um, it, the information seemed to switch and change. We were told one thing one day, then something different the next day. It was a complete roller coaster. So just first of all, your thoughts on, and, and I'm sure this will help us perhaps in the future, God forbid, other air accidents happen you know that how we actually deal with family relatives in a situation like that and clearly it, it, it wasn't easy for for all of you what what kind of you know I, I, i'm not asking you to rate the support but let's look on a more positive way what would you have liked to have happened during those first few weeks that wasn't happening well, I think that, I mean, Malaysia, I suppose they have this, the Montreal Convention, which sort of sure. lays out what you do for the families of victims and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think this being unprecedented, Malaysia being unprepared, they just didn't know how to handle something like this. They had no, they had no crisis management team in place. They just didn't know what to do. And um, although there are protocols that are set out, ex especially for situations like this, where, you know, there may be a period where it takes time before the plane is located takes time before there's any like search and rescue or search and recovery and like in this interim period like there are certain like how do you say like things there are certain like step-by-step uh, -step procedures laid down or certain mm -hmm. like recommendations in place to deal with this sort of thing including providing counseling uh, advancing some sort of compensation to sort of help in the, in the initial aftermath. yeah yeah and also because from a legal perspective because i'm a lawyer and i can a while before you recognize someone as they're dead because you can't really start any procedure because people are just missing until you then go through some sort of court process to declare them dead because in like our case no bodies were recovered so it was an unnatural thing and in for legally it usually wait seven years for someone to be missing before you say they're dead or but assume they're dead or officially dead yeah so in our case like you know for a lot of the families who lost the sole breadwinner of their family had no access to the accounts or the banks and you know what would they have done in this interim period it took more than a year for anyone to possibly start probate because the government had to declare everyone dead and i i think on on a basic human level and I, i'm particularly conscious of some of the stories i heard directly from some of the chinese relatives who were often living out in quite remote areas like this wasn't something you could just hop in a plane you know, every week and get an update from what was happening in Kuala Lumpur. They had to go to Beijing. They were traveling for hours uh, to get to the family support center that was set up there. Um, you know, uh, and of course, these were, I suppose, like in any country, the family unit is very important. And suddenly there's no mother in the family unit. There's no father in the family unit. And, and these can often be essentially what we call the breadwinners. Essentially, you know, they have there's no income coming to that family in those first few weeks as well. Um, again, horrifying stories that you know we need to do better to support families, and we need to have a plan there that can immediately be implemented. Talk, talk to me then. Uh, sorry, if you 
want to say something? I think for China, a lot of it was they were extra devastated because they have the single child policy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the families only had one child. And if they lost that one child, that was the whole legacy of their family gone. Yeah. So, I mean, for them, there was an added element of pain that I think a lot of us don't understand because that one child, the only child that they can have is so precious to them. But also in terms of relief and help, I think that like having counsellors immediately available, having a good communication system, I don't necessarily think having everyone grouped together where all of the press is and why all of this is, is not necessarily helpful. In fact, it can be very traumatic. No, 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 no. we clearly saw visual images of how traumatic it was and uh, and perhaps and i i know the uh you know malaysians and chinese authorities came under a, a lot of criticism but i can understand after a certain point after those first two or three weeks there was a certain point where you know you've got to say we 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 can't all gather here you know hundreds of people families you know indefinitely at some point you know because this doesn't look like there's going to be resolution very soon so uh, uh, to a degree i could understand and of course the whole media bandwagon became utter lunacy uh you know we saw the likes of cnn virtually it, it became cnn mh370 uh for for uh, I think something extraordinary that we've never seen with a, with a TV network almost for two solid months and just endlessly talking about the same things and of course the lack of, of information just on, we touched on Voice 370 tell me a little bit about how Voice 370 came about so what actually happened was we people reached out to us families from other air crashes I think uh, one in particular that stood out was from a German uh, air crash and it was a German family and also from the French air crash from a few years ago. Uh, air France, and, 447, yeah. Yeah, Air France. And uh, they reached out to us and they told us that, you know, this is not something you can think about now, but it is something that will be useful moving forward. And this is our advice to you that you should set up a family support group and association from which you can speak with one voice and we found that it was very effective for us and it's also a support group is also something that you will rely on for each other and that sort of thing and uh, that is how voice 370 came about and, and i think it's it's very important because i know as well even gone back quite some years the families of swiss air uh, 111 also did something like this and um i think from what the feedback I get from families who go through something like this, it, almost part of their life becomes about assisting someone else who finds their themselves in their position. They know what they're going through and they can identify and say, look, this is what you need to do. This is the best way to deal with this. This is the best way to handle the media. This is, you know, there are, there are positive things that can come out of that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Voice 370 or the, the next of kin, the families in general, have some say in everything that goes on. And uh, people do want to hear our side of the story or mm-hmm. our point of view. And the fact that we can all speak with one voice is important. It does carry some weight. And I think that it has definitely helped keep this cause alive. I really think that things could be far worse if we were not as vocal as we were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we'll, we'll touch on one or two things that I think voice 370 did that may not have happened had it not been for the pressure the increased pressure that you you constantly kept on um let's just 
touch on some of those things because this this whole tragedy has taken to you to taken you to, to many parts of the world. Um, one of the, the I, I, I we'll talk in a second about the visit that you made to Australia to I think it was Perth um, when you were invited by the uh, the the ATSB uh, to to take a look at what uh, Fulgro would was doing in in that larger one hundred and twenty thousand square kilometer. Uh, search that essentially went on for nearly two and a half, three years, but you you also went to uh, I think it was places like Mauritius, Madagascar, and that was to raise aware. Just tell us a little bit about why you were there, and you know for for our listeners and viewers why you went there, and and specifically what that was about. This was about as debris started to turn up on the East African coast. Yeah, so what that how that came about was because we saw that Dane, Ellen Gibson, who is this private citizen, had been traveling, based on the research done by Professor Chari, had been traveling to the Western Indian Ocean to look for debris. Mm-hmm. He had been successful, and he had only gone to one area. He kept going back to the same stretch, the same beach. And on that beach alone, he had found maybe two or three pieces of debris. I mean, only uh, one has been identified, but like, he still found several pieces mm-hmm. of debris and we thought that, well, if he's one person looking and he found a few of these pieces to try and go and raise awareness. And we did raise this through many press statements. We encouraged the government to, through intergovernment connections and channels, to encourage the governments in these countries to just broadcast over the radio or to basically inform and educate the public about what might be happening and basically to help the public be on the lookout, especially the tourists who holiday on these beaches. Sure, and, and what to be what to be looking out for, because um, obviously in a situation like that... Um, you, you, and at this stage, there was particularly one piece of debris that had been left there for like months. Hmm. And, it, and then Malaysia had any, it kept saying, oh, we're sending someone, oh, we've sent someone, but the debris just wasn't getting picked up and we were starting to become concerned. And just a couple of months prior to our trip to Africa, when we were in Australia, we met personally with Professor Chari. We spoke to him personally. He explained the mapping to us. He explained the science behind it. We were confident in what he explained to us. And then Blaine had also found something. So there was more than one reason why we felt like, yes, we should go there. And But the main purpose was not to go look for, go on a debris hunt by ourselves, but the purpose was to make sure that the eyes of the people who live and work on those islands, who holiday on those islands, were kept peeled for any possible pieces of debris. Right, and anything that looks unusual, because they would be more familiar uh, with the area, particularly, you know, native people living in an area will notice something that doesn't, well, that's not ordinary beach sort of rubbish, you know, that we normally see. Yeah, and we were aware that we were going to a place where it was quite underdeveloped, where we would have language barriers because the two countries were French-speaking, mostly. And uh, among us, none of us was French-speaking. We had one French NOK who came along, but he wasn't going to be with each of us during the whole trip because we had to split up to cover as much ground as possible. Right, so, was you know, that Geislin? Yeah, Geislin yeah, was yeah, So, I mean, and he, I mean, we were not all going to be together all the time, of course, mm-hmm. but it helped having him there. So before we went, I remember spending days and hours just going on Facebook and adding every single community-based group in Madagascar, talking to to everyone, trying to say, like, oh, we're coming from this date to this date. Could you help us? Could you 
give us some tips to you tell us who we could get in touch with and you know just basically you know like just clawing around hoping you know that someone somewhere would respond and say yes i know this person that you can get in touch with i know this person that will help you and uh, as we were especially trying very hard to get in touch with the press and you know we were tr- and um, eventually like just through these facebook connections and like talking to everyone we were, i was introduced to a couple of journalists and these journalists you know people who had friends who were journalists they be, and through these couple of journalists we managed to spread the word that we were coming and that we would want to hold a press conference and to our utter amazement our press conference was very well attended mm-hmm. and we had Gislaine do the french portion and we did the english portion and we also had a couple of international reporters who had come to cover our journey so we had the wires like routers and stuff there who carried the news to all of the other major broadcasting networks and that that awareness certainly um you know helped to identify and find there because essentially suddenly what started happening was it wasn't just Blaine Allen Gibson finding debris. We had Liam Lauder. I think we had uh, Niels, who was uh, an archaeologist. Yeah. I think you know we, we had quite a no- we, I think we had another uh, tourist couple who started. You know, so suddenly it was ordinary people finding debris. Yeah, and also while we were there, and we branched out to the smaller cities and towns, we were. We were met by the village chiefs. We went to the tourism authorities, mm-hmm. to the fishing authorities, who you know, who said they would put out brochures and they were giving out little packs to all the fishermen. They had started this initiative where they would give the men a little pack that they could a waterproof bag which they could put their belongings in when they went out fishing. And they said they would put a brochure in all of our right. in all of those for the fishermen to be on the lookout for debris. And like we were overwhelmed by the amount of support we received and. We went to a lot of these smaller islands where a lot of the people lived in very me like sort of meager conditions, like they mm-hmm. didn't really have electricity or running water, but their hearts were so open to wanting to help. And I'm sure that they've probably never really been in a plane or may never be in a plane or not understand the gravity of the situation. But they were so willing to help, and and they were they said that they would return anything that they found to the fishermen who would take it to the main island to pass it to the police station and. Even after we came back, we, the response was good. We heard from a lot of mostly local tourists because we did reach out to a lot of the tourism agencies who sent out these um, brochures to the digital copies of the brochures to all of the hotels on the island. So when we went back to our own hotel, we found that they had already printed the brochure and stuck it up on the notice board and were handing it out to some of the guests so that <laughs> the guests could be looked out. And it was really very, we were all very touched by these gestures. And a lot of the tourists did write back saying that they would be on the lookout. We even got a lot of photographs. And a lot of the time it was boat debris. But it was good that people were actually taking taking it seriously, taking our efforts seriously. Absolutely. Um, I, I know as well you had a, a, in those some of those packs as well, you had a, like a fact sheet. Because so often we, we experience this through social media. You know I'm heavily involved with social media and I've, worked with some years uh, to try and put the word out and so often we would get back news of somebody in wherever it was tanzania or or mauritius or south africa who would say oh i'm i i actually picked up a piece of debris on the bit and thought it was a bit unusual and it was sitting in my shed for the last two months i didn't know what to do with it and it was uh, as you say it was getting that awareness say with a point by point what to do 
you know contact the local police authorities you know get them to contact the civil aviation authority of that country who in turn can contact the civil aviation authority in either australia or malaysia you know so it was that process of you know because so often people just didn't know what to, or didn't realize what they actually had but just knew it was something odd and we were also able to go on all the radio stations who agreed to play the sort of like an played like a commercial yeah to just play our our brief two or three minutes explaining what we would like them to do over and over again for a couple of months so that everyone would hear it. So, I mean, the response we got was really, really, I mean, I, I cannot explain it, it was overwhelming. And we were so touched to be to be met by so many people and so many people cared and we, they were taking everything we said so seriously. And we realized that people are so concerned and like we were at, this, at that point in time, I think very disappointed at our government that we had to go and do this. Right. That we had to travel all of this way on our own money to do something that they could have done so easily, just maybe with a phone call. <laughs> yeah. You also, um, were invited to meet the, uh, ATSB who, who essentially at that stage were handling the, um, the, uh, uh, Frugo, the, the the contract for the the, the Frugo search, and of course we know that that's we, gone on we, for. We asked, we asked them if we could come. Right. Okay. Yeah, because we were trying very very hard to get in touch with the Malaysian government for a sit down for a discussion, and we were just being stonewalled for like, and at this stage it had already been over two years, so we reached out to the Australians who said, sure, come. We'll t- let you know when the ship is next coming to port. Come see the ship and then come up to Canberra. We'll take you to the lab so you can see the flapper on and you can talk to the people. We'll show you how the what we're doing and how we're doing it and all of that. And we'll explain everything to you. You can ask any questions you like. And then while we were in Perth, we also met Professor Chari. We also met Duncan Steele. Yeah, yeah, Duncan Steele yeah, from the IG. And um, so we met a couple of these experts from the university, from different universities who also explained a lot of scientific stuff to us. And then it was a very good trip because we learned a lot. And I think the crew, seeing how hard they work, gave us a much deeper appreciation and a better understanding of the complexity of the search. I think we were on the ship for maybe two or three hours and uh, the ship was obviously bobbing because it was on the water. And I remember all of us had a mild headache by the time we got off the ship. <laughs> so you can imagine when you're out for three or four weeks on a ship like that. The waves are like six, seven meters high. And um, they told us a lot of them don't even sleep in their room. They sleep in the in the rec room, which is a room that's really at the furthest bottom of the ship. It's usually where they sit and watch TV or eat something. And a lot of them sleep on the chairs there because that's the place where you feel the least of the bobbing, I suppose. Right. And uh, and, you know, like it would just put a lot of things into perspective for us. And the fact that a lot of people work such long shifts, like the people who sit and monitor what the towfish is watching, they mm-hmm. do 12 hours. So they work like 12 hours nonstop and then rest for a while, come back, work 12 hours. And, and, so that, and being a monitor has to be intense work because you're looking at a screen, you're looking at data and you can't afford to, because that one thing that you miss, you know, out of a thousand things you look at that day. And, yeah, it could cause the towfish to crash, it yeah. could cause damage to the towfish, and that would mean like the search would get delayed because the to- that one and only towfish would need to be repaired and then remobilized. And So, I mean, it was it was really a good eye-opening experience for us, and we saw how cheerful everyone was, and we saw a lot of concern, and, and you know, that they were doing their jobs, they were so dedicated. Like, it really helped to know that 
to see some faces at the other end of the search. And I think that's one of the important things because I know, of course, we've all been very frustrated, you know, with, with the Malaysian government and, and, yeah, look at times with the Australian government as well. But I think for everybody, you know, who wants to theorise or do whatever they want or whatever, whoever way they feel involved and follow this, I think we've got to keep remembering that the vast majority of people involved in this are ordinary men and women being paid to do a job and do it as professionally as possible. They they are not the people at the top part of the pyramid, the sort of the the, the policy makers, the, the government ministers. They are the people lower down who are day to day doing this work, doing And like I think it just gave us a very deep sense of appreciation. Like we didn't take it for so much for granted mm -hmm. as we did before the complexity, how difficult it is, how much time it takes, how much effort. And oh. of course, you know, we met the Australian people. They were so passionate. They, you know, we really felt confident in what they were saying. We felt that they cared because a lot of the time when you're here and all you hear is on the news, you don't have personal contact with these people. You cannot put a face to these names. You just wonder how sincere they are. Do they really care? Do they really know how hard it is for us? without any information, just waiting like this. And uh, having met them, we felt their dedication. We saw the passion that they had. It, and, you know, like we just felt so much more confidence in the whole search. Ultimately, the Fogro searched. They reached an end. Essentially, uh, the, the, the Australian were tasked with uh, carrying out the search um, uh, with a uh, Fogro. That ultimately came to an end. They they searched the, the entire 120,000 kilometer area and said, no, we can't find it. And then that was uh, well, January 2017. That that was it yeah. then. That that had to be a, a, a body blow for the relatives to say that that's it now. Nobody's looking now. You know, we're not going to yeah. find it if we're not looking. Yeah, that was horrible for us. And we sort of felt that it was drawing to a close and... Uh, we felt Malaysia not really making any effort to, you know, like resume the search because we thought that the, after the first principles review with this 25,000 square kilometers recommended by the Australians that they might say, fine, just search because the ship's already here, the ship's already mobilized, people mm -hmm. are already here, let's just continue. Because that would make so much more sense than, you know, like demobilizing the ship and then like remobilizing it again. And it takes so much time. And of course, everything is always weather orientated and seasonally orientated when you can search. Exactly. So like we were and we saw that they were not doing that. And so we sort of had a feeling that the search might be suspended and it was right before the three year mark. So That's we decided right, yeah, March. Yeah. So what we decided was as the family members was that we would try to assemble a team on our own. And then if we could assemble a team and we could have a plan in place, then we would start some sort of fund mm -hmm. that would we would try to fund our own search. Like we were willing to go to such lengths. Essentially an independent search of, of your own. Yeah, and, and this was all because we felt that the them stopping, them suspending the search at that stage was premature because three years on, they had so much more information than they had. Mm -hmm. They were they in had, a far better position. They had the debris, they had so much more. I mean, technology must have improved in the three mm -hmm. years. They must have somewhere. And then they come up with this 25,000. Ridiculous that they would just be like, oh, you know what? We wouldn't put any faith in the team that we appointed. Yeah. And we would discard the information that they have found or the, the results that they have found and the recommendations they have made. They were essentially saying the people we appointed, 
well, their the evidence that they have produced or the it's not it's not credible. Yeah, no, yeah we, we heard this this line over and over again. You know, the the need for credible information leading to a precise uh, location of the aircraft, and of course, it, wanted, it was complete roundabout. Yeah, and they wanted to find the plane before they wanted to search for it. Yeah. And then they never gave us a definition of what credible was. Everything was so vague. So, I mean, we were left in this devastating position. And we did, in fact, start speaking to people, start thinking about assembling a team. And uh, and then we heard very early on about this Ocean Infinity offer. You, you spoke about it. I just wanted to clarify this. Um, I think you said it was around about the third anniversary. And I don't know whether, and you can correct me if I'm wrong whether it was Minister Lowe who was present at the, uh, the the gathering in Kuala Lumpur for the, the third anniversary, and he, whether he meant to say it or let it slip, or but indicated that a company or someone had actually approached him and suggested they would be interested in searching. And this was kind of the first, this kind of takes us to where we are now. But just just talk to me about that and just clarify that to me. So basically, like we heard as well, and I can't, I really can't remember for the life of me where we got this information from, but we heard that there was this company that offered to search for free or a no cure, no fee basis, mm-hmm. basically. And um, so, you know, initially we were like, oh, is it really, is this offer really on the table? Is this really happening? And then I think like a little bit, a few more months down the road, I mean, we were hoping that the negotiations were in taking place and, and something must like that. be happening. And every month goes by, there'll be an announcement at some stage, and then nothing, nothing, nothing. So, kind of around August, wasn't it? You decided, now we've got to up the pressure here. What's going on? So, basically, for the first two or three months, like after the remembrance event, we were on planning on our side, like trying to. Mm-hmm a group and we were talking to people David Merns was one of them we were speaking to all of these people about sort of putting a group together yeah and um, and then I think it came out in the press that there were these offers from a few companies or something like that and then I remember we sent out a series of press releases about how come they haven't taken this offer and then we found out that the offer had been on the table for three months and then six months and mm. then like until very recently and for like I think the last two or three months they've been talking about the agreement talking about finalizing the agreement and here we are saying like oh look it's summer already like when are you going to start and um, even recently like two or three days ago the families were briefed by DCA the day before they signed the contract and they told us that the offer has been on the table for a year yeah and we also found out of course that even Fugro had gone back to the Malaysian government and the DCA and said, look, we're here, we're, we've already done it, we're willing to, to go again if you want us to. And uh, exactly, and and the Malaysian government kept a, a tight lid on everything, didn't tell us anything as usual. Ocean Infinity did not contact the families in any way. Mm-hmm. And I think we heard about Fugro in the news, everything we hear about in the news through the press, yeah. if someone leaks something somewhere. And I, up to some point, I didn't, I didn't even know where I get all the, the information from, but I know it's not from the government. Yeah. So, and that has been sort of like the story of MH370 for all of us, like just not knowing anything and forever being in the dark and forever like trying to bark up every tree we can find, hoping for answers. So, we, we are where we are now. Essentially, yeah. <coughs> uh, the contract is now signed formally signed we witnessed that um, a couple of days ago on on wednesday um your 
thoughts on Ocean Infinity? Certainly, I had question marks over Ocean Infinity, probably like you, that, that I didn't really know much about this uh, this company and, and the background. The more and more information I've got, the more and more impressed. One thing that, that has struck me in the past several weeks is that there is a genuine positivity and confidence this time that even wasn't present in the first year of the Fugro search. Yeah, I, I feel like Ocean Infinity, for whatever reason, is feeling very confident. I do know that they did consult with a team of experts, the independent experts from the independent group. They had a meeting, they sat down, and I think they themselves are confident in the, fi- the recommendations by the Australians. And for their own reasons, maybe with their own experts, maybe they find the calculations sound, maybe they find the science sound, maybe they find the research and the theory that led them to recommend this current 25,000 square kilometer area a sound decision. Yeah. I think they are they are confident because, I mean, the, for them, it's also an exercise that, that money will be spent. So if they don't find the plane, then then they don't get anything. And, and so, we, know, we know they have it in divisions as well, um, you know, and, and yeah. they've also it's indicated that, that they that there seems to be a willingness to search that entire 25,000 uh, square kilometre area and if if willing and if time allows, even push further. Um, yeah. So again, it, it looks positive. We can't do any more other than, uh, and I think I said this to someone last night, look, one of the most positive things about this is this isn't going to take a year, two years, three. We aren't going to be waiting and waiting the way we were before. This is going to happen quite rapidly. The the efficiency of Ocean Infinity's equipment, uh, the eight Hugans that they have, is 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 going to quite rapidly get through the the area. Um, so the first twenty five thousand square kilometers is going to take them about twenty six days. Yeah, essentially less than a month, and I think that's very 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 fast compared to what we've been used to. Which, and, but which, which is extraordinary. Point, yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, the equipment looks very, very impressive. But, you know, for us as family members, as much as we're so grateful that the search is back on again, like it's so difficult for us to be equally hopeful or equally optimistic because in the past we've just been disappointed at every turn. Mm-hmm. This has been a very journey for us and it's so hard for us to just be like, yeah, this is, this is it, that they're going to find the plane. And at the same time, like it's difficult to be excited because this is not really something that we want like on the one hand you want it found but on the ne- on the I, other uh, hand I understand like, because it, it opens up a whole new chapter yeah and like am I really ready for this devastation or you know like having to accept this that I have not really fully accepted for the last four years I'm probably less in denial now than I was initially mm-hmm. but I don't think there has there has been any form of acceptance like complete acceptance like any acceptance is minimal partial at best and like I think that that is going to be like a whole another ball game, and mm. no one can possibly say I'll be so excited if they find the plane. Like that's not really true for us. But you know, it needs to be found, and only then the healing can begin. Only then, like that journey, that grieving can properly happen, and then hopefully we can attain closure proper at some point. Re- resolution yeah. and and solutions to what happened. Uh, flight MH three seventy. Grace Nathan, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank I you. wish you very well. Thank you. And I hope we will have positive news soon. Yes. Take care, you. Grace. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
You have been listening to Radio Aspile, a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media and presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney. Please feel free to leave a comment and visit our links provided in this podcast production. Thank you for your support. Thank you again for joining us uh, for this episode. Radio Spoil is a global internet broadcast with audio and video. Our focus is on media and how it deals with news. Our core areas will always be aviation, publishing, technology and other things considered uh, when it's significant in the media news. Thanks again for Grace Nathan joining us uh, for an excellent interview. We obviously at Radio Aspoil wish uh, all the crew and the people involved in the current search for Malaysia Airlines and the seabed wreckage at Ocean Infinity the very best. Uh, We'll catch up and we'll keep you obviously updated. Uh, You can catch us on uh, www.radioespoil.com and our social media links which we'll include in this podcast and videocast uh, thanks for joining us and we will see you again hopefully very soon for uh, episode 8 thank you <laughs>